uh, Melissa felt lonely and bitter. Uh, she and Liam, they'd been married for about four years now, and she, she thought back to their wedding day, which had been amazing. The vicar, uh, he'd given an inspiring talk from Genesis chapter 2, where God says it is not good for man to be alone. Her heart was warmed as he described her and, and Liam as being in a, in a kind of fairy tale. But now... Four hard years later, she sat and she, she wept tears of self-pity and bitterness. How could the reality be so different? After their wedding, she and Liam, they moved away to another city, a relocation for, for his job. All of Melissa's uni friends were now miles away and while they kept up on the, the phone, uh, she felt lonely. Liam was busy and absorbed in his work, but he still seemed to expect her to be all smiles when he returned home in the evening, an hour and a half or so after she'd already returned home from her less inspiring job. Marriage for Melissa really wasn't all it had been cracked up to be. Didn't match the description on the tin, nor the description given by that vicar, the daydream or the fairy tale. And in her bitterness, she wondered if there really was any point in keeping it all going. If the rest of her life was going to be like this, what was the point? Uh, Christopher Ashe tells that story, and many others like it, uh, in his book called Married for God, which is worth a read. Uh, but you might be someone who, who has felt... Uh, in, in that way uh, to some degree or another. Marriage, the, the romantic picture of your dreams, not matching reality. We do live in a world where marriage often goes wrong. Uh, and many of you experience that for, for all kinds of different reasons. So this marriage thing, what's the go? Well, Genesis 2 tells us what God was thinking when he decided to put man and woman together in marriage. And we're really looking at five things this afternoon. The man, the verdict, the woman, the marriage, and finally the goal of marriage as seen through Jesus Christ our Lord. The man, the verdict, the woman, the marriage, and the goal of marriage as seen through Jesus Christ our Lord. But you notice, chapter 2, we've just had it read for us, the camera zooms in on the climax of God's creation, that is man and woman. Back in Genesis 1, if you were here last week, we had that, that general statement about the creation of humanity. Genesis uh, chapter 2 now zooms in with the details. And you notice it begins with the man. And the first thing that it says about the man in verse 7, we read, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. If your Bible's on your lap, you may notice there's a footnote next to where it says man in verse 7. And you look down and we read the Hebrew word for man is actually Adam, which comes from the Hebrew word Adamah, which means ground. So we have the man Adam who comes from the ground, 
we could perhaps translate man in verse 7 here as groundling or earthling or dusty, uh, though all of those would be a bit weird, wouldn't they? So maybe that's why they didn't. Well, Genesis chapter 1 makes it really clear humans are the climax of God's grand creation. His masterpiece set to rule over the creation under God. We said at the end of the service last week, don't go leaving here thinking little of yourselves. Here in chapter 2, verse 7, we're reminded not to think too much of ourselves. Men and women were, we are just magnificently made pieces of dust, dirt, made from the same stuff as everything else in creation. What do we say at a funeral from dust to dust? Ashes to ashes. So don't go thinking too much of yourself. See also, though, from that same verse 7, because God breathes life into us, we don't have life apart from the life-giving creator God. Human life is a gift from God. That's what Christians believe, and that might seem really obvious to you this afternoon. But because we depend on God for our very life, we cannot understand what it means to be properly human, truly human, apart from him. Without knowing God, we cannot truly know ourselves. That's a big claim, isn't it? You really want to understand yourself? as you struggle with who am I in this life, don't go to the self-help podcasts. You go to the God of the Bible. Get to know him, the one who made you. Anyway, having formed the man, God puts him in a garden, verse 8. The garden is described, verse 9 to 14, and you, you just notice that it has everything, good food, beautiful scenery, stunning water views. This is where the man will live and where the man will work. But there are limits. Verse 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have Dusty, the man made from the dirt, given enormous freedom by the God who has gifted him life, eat from every tree except one. And while everything is good, this is before the fall, while everything is good in in God's new world, we had that repetition back in chapter 1, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and we get to humanity, and God saw that it was very good. Something here is still not quite right. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So for the first time in this creation story, God's verdict, it's not good. What man needs, God says, is a helper suitable for him. I don't know if you get stuck on that word helper. I think we can from time to time, thinking that uh, helper is to be lesser or inferior in some way, I think it can be helpful to know that that same word is used of God himself 
Uh, When he rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, uh, Moses refers to the Lord as the helper of Israel. It's not an inferior thing to be a helper. But as as the narrative progresses, You see, God starts to bring the animals to the man. Are we looking for this helper among the animals? It just seems a bit awkward, doesn't it? And while Adam, he names the animals, we read in verse 20, for Adam no suitable helper was found. And so we come to the woman in verse 21. God goes to work to create for Adam a suitable helper. Adam's put to sleep. Surgery is performed, uh, removing a a rib or part of Adam's side, and God creates a woman. And and interestingly, that the sleep that Adam is put into uh, sounds a lot like the sleep that Abraham is put into in Genesis chapter 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham that he will have many descendants. You can think about that later. God then brings the woman, he brings her to Adam for his consideration. And Adam's response is just like most blokes who see a beautiful woman. Wow. Uh, Perhaps Adam's a bit more refined than your average bloke and, you know, he, he turns the wow into a few more words writing poetry. And it's there in verse 23. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. What is a suitable helper? Uh, Someone enough like the man to enjoy an intimate relationship, unlike the animals. Someone who talks back someone who shares most of his physiology, someone who bears God's image as well, a fellow image bearer. She's also different to him, though, and that's crucial. It means they complement each other. He can't fulfil the creation mandate to fill the earth without her. It's why God has designed marriage between a man and a woman only. She is the suitable helper that complements him. There's diversity and there's not sameness in their oneness. That's why same-sex relationships are not a proper representation of biblical marriage. That's why gender is a real thing. God made the male and female, man and woman. That's becoming a challenging thought in our culture today. The differences between man and woman is what makes relationship between the sexes both exhilarating because she's not like me and completely frustrating at times because he never gets me. Uh, Jen and I have been married for 12 years now and we're really only beginning the lifelong project of understanding each other, I reckon. And Jen keeps changing which is wonderful and frustrating all at once. But you see the conclusion that our writer draws, verse 24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become 
one flesh. Just as God brought the woman to the man to complement him, so he leaves his family of origin to be bound to his wife. They form a new family unit. And sometimes marriages go wrong because that has never happened. The theme, if you like, of marriage is oneness. A man is to be united to his wife. It literally means sticking to his wife. And it carries the idea of total commitment and permanence. It's physical oneness expressed in sexual union. It's emotional oneness, spiritual oneness, relational oneness. They're no longer separate individuals, but a team, a family. And so the priority becomes what is best for the team. The goal to serve the best interests of the partner. It looks like verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. No secrets, nothing hidden from each other. Complete trust, openness and intimacy between two people. Some picture, isn't it? As we struggle with singleness, perhaps, as we battle with our imperfect marriages or live with the grief of divorce or the death of a husband or a wife. What is the key difference between Christian marriage and any other? A friend of mine, when he does marriage prep with couples, he sits, he sits them down, you know, um, and he says, you're smart people, gives them the benefit of the doubt, which I think is kind. You're smart people, and smart people can make marriage work, but God's shooting for so much more in your marriage. And he takes them to Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, and he says, God's goal is for your marriage to reflect reflect the Lord Jesus Christ's love for his church and God will use your partner to make you personally more like Christ in ways you'll enjoy and in ways that'll be painful. And you may know Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31, uh, there the Apostle Paul, he quotes Genesis 2:24 about oneness. And then he says in the very next verse, verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, we might assume the profound mystery is oneness in marriage. But it's not. It's referring to the oneness between Jesus Christ and us, his church, to which marriage is only a pointer and illustration. So that's the key difference, isn't it, between Christian marriage and and other marriages. It's not that being Christian guarantees you to have a happier marriage, a better marriage, a more wonderful sex life. That's not always the case. It can be really hard. But the key difference to Christian marriage is Christ at the centre of your relationship. So if you're married... 
His love for you is the basis of your love for your partner. Jesus, who willingly sacrifices himself for us, for our good, his love for me is the basis for my love for Jen, not her performance, not her looks, or some other thing. And you notice with Jesus, he doesn't demand that his love is reciprocated. See how much I love you? You have to love me back. No. Or that we do something to earn his love. No. I'll love you when? No. And you notice this kind of love, it frees us from being demanding. Your love for your partner won't depend on how they treat you, but on what Jesus has already done for you. And, of course, the same truth is to shape all of our other relationships as well, isn't it? If you're not married, it applies to your friends and your neighbours. There's often so much going in life, I reckon, when it goes messy, when marriages go pear-shaped, when we're struggling in all kinds of ways. But one of the big claims of the Bible we cannot truly understand ourselves or marriage for that matter apart from the loving God who made us, who breathed life into us. And so the application this afternoon, it's just got to be to look to him, to get to know him as he reveals himself by his word and spirit. And so I want to know how you're going with that. Knowing and growing in Jesus. I've noticed lately, and this is for me, but I'm sure it's the same for you, it's very easy to live as a functional atheist. Yes, I believe in the God of the Bible. Yeah, I do. But day to day, it's so easy to live as though he's not there. This is the God who made us for relationship with him first and then each other. How are you going at knowing and growing in Jesus? Is it your highest goal? Your greatest priority? I pray that it is. Without knowing God, we can't truly know ourselves. Leave here with that in your mind. Without knowing God, I cannot truly know myself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to confess uh, that we are a people who have been trying to figure out things ourselves. We want to thank you, Lord, that you do speak, that you reveal yourself to us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for at times living as though you are not relational, doing life with us, that we might rely on you. And Lord, we're sorry for the way that we failed to allow your word to shape us and to shape our marriages. Our great and, and mighty God, we pray that we would be a people 
who know your love in the Lord Jesus Christ and that that love shapes the way we relate to our husband or wife and all those other relationships too. Father, give us the courage to go home now and have frank conversations where it's necessary. Help us to own our own sin. Help us to recognise that we are the problem often. And we pray, Lord, that in humility you would give us as a church family uh, relationships that point to the Lord Jesus Christ and his relationship with us, his church. Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts and that our great goal would would be to know you, to grow in you, and that as we do this, we might understand ourselves and all those other relationships. We pray this in Jesus' all-powerful name. Amen.